Lord, we just come before you in your name and we pray that as your word is open and we know you're here, Lord, by your spirit, you are present. We thank you for the gift and the opportunity to worship you in all of your glory. We pray that even now, Lord, that you will descend upon us in a special way. And as we lay before you the deepest longings of our heart, won't you meet us in that place? Satisfy us with your presence as your word has promised you will. Do so now. And we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We have been marching through the book of Exodus, and now we have come to the section of Scripture 25 through 31, where now the people of Israel are going out on the desert floor. They will have longings. They will have desires uh, to eat, to drink, but ultimately uh, to be present with the Lord. And what we have in 25 through 31 is exactly that, God giving, him, giving them his special presence. And that's significant because they have longings. They have desires. We have longings. We have desires. And we could go around here this morning and each person could share with the rest of us what the longings of your heart are. And they would fall somewhere under the category of maybe a longing to be soothed, a longing for significance, a longing for security, you know, a, a longing to be connected, to be known, to be seen. You know, any one of those categories, I would say the lion's share of what the deepest longings of our heart would fall into one of those categories. The problem is that we live in a world where oftentimes those ultimate longings don't get met. And so what do we do? You know, one of the things we could do is just kind of stuff it inside of us, just keep burying it. But the problem is, that just like a well that gets covered over, eventually the water comes up. And it's never good when that happens because it usually spills out in all sorts of destructive ways. Or we try to meet a legitimate longing in an illegitimate way, which causes all sorts of hurts. Or if we experience these longings unmet long enough, what we begin to do is then reorder our longings. I came across this quote from Walker Percy in his work, Love and Ruins. And it's a quote from Dr. Tom Moore, a character in that book. He says, I believe in God and the whole business but I love women best, music and science next, whiskey next, God forth, and my fellow man hardly at all. <laughs> <You> know, just <laughs> That might be where you're at. You know, if you're honest with yourself, you know, one thing I ask, Lord, this is what I seek, or maybe some of these things and maybe not the things of the Lord. Which means, and what probably that points to is what C.S. Lewis says, if I find myself in my desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If the reason why our longings haven't been ultimately fulfilled in this world, maybe it's pointing to the fact that the longings that we have can't ultimately be filled in this world. They have to be fulfilled in another world. A world that's like Eden. Which is exactly why God gave the people of God a tabernacle, a place where heaven and earth would come together, would meet, and that the Lord, through his presence, would meet the deepest longings of their hearts. And that's what we're going to be looking at. At Exodus 25 through 31, we see the tabernacle and what God gives them with the tabernacle. Nothing less and nothing short of his presence. And that's what our hearts long for, is God's presence. Because the only thing that will meet the deepest longings of our heart is the presence of God. If you have your scriptures, Exodus 25, uh, one, verse 1, and then we're actually going to read all the way through 
uh, to verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, verse 7, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Now, I want to give a couple observations here. First is that in verse 1, it says, the Lord said to Moses. There are seven times in the scriptures where it says the Lord speaks, the Lord says. Now, where else in scripture does the Lord speak in such a way to bring about a creation? (laughs) I just told you, creation. (laughs) Creation. Seven times the Lord speaks in this section of scripture. That is reflecting back to the Garden of Eden. In other words, there's something significant about the tabernacle. There's something very special. Just as Eden was set apart for a particular purpose, so the tabernacle will be set apart for a particular purpose. Another observation uh, that we see is then in verse 2, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Now, that, that is the, a biblical reason for capital campaigns. <laughs> when we ran a capital campaign, people says, where's the biblical evidence? It's right there, right there. Another observation is that in this section of scripture, you have not six, but seven categories of materials. You have metals, textiles, leather skins, wood, oil, spices, and precious stones. Again, all pointing back to creation. And notice what happens. God gives them these things. They didn't create silver and gold. But God created those things and then he entrusted it to the priesthood of believers, the people of Israel, to co-create with him for the purpose of taking the raw resources that God has entrusted to them and arranging them in such a way so as to bring about the tabernacle. God was inviting them into a holy work. That's exactly what we do Monday through Saturday in our work. Whether we're in the home or outside of the home, we take the raw resources that God has entrusted to us and we arrange them in such a way for the purpose of bringing about a blessing and serving the other person. For the purpose of bringing the kingdom, which means that there is no secular, sacred divide because those who are priests, we are the priesthood of believers. When we take God's resources and arrange them in such a way for God's purposes, it is sacred. What you do in your life is sacred. Charles Spurgeon says, you housemaids, you cooks, you nurses, you plowmen, you housewives, you traders, you sailors, your labor is holy if you serve the Lord Christ in it. If by living unto him as you ought to live, the sacred has absorbed the secular, the overarching temple of the Lord covers all your houses and your fields. My brothers and sisters, this ennobles life. Third observation is that the material that's being used, or one of the materials in verse 7, is the onyx stone. The first time that is used, in fact, the last time that was used, is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 12, referring to the land of Eden. The land of Eden was established in onyx stones. Again, pointing back to the Garden of Eden. How do we know that this is so? Verses 8 and 9. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. The tabernacle was not heaven. Heaven was heaven. But the tabernacle was more than a replica. 
because it was in the tabernacle where heaven and earth met. In other words, the tabernacle became a portal in which the people of God were united to the person of God because of a sacrifice. The tabernacle is a mobile Eden. What made Eden Eden was the presence of God. What makes the tabernacle the tabernacle and so special is the very presence of God. And that's what's being declared here. What we see in Eden, what we saw on Mount Sinai is the same thing that is present with the tabernacle. In fact, scholars will say there's a tripartite section which, within each of those three. So for example, you have, well, in Eden. In Eden, you have the land of Eden, you have the garden, which is a specific location in Eden, and then you have the tree of life, getting closer and closer and closer to the very presence, the intense presence of God. Notice in Mount Sinai, the same thing when we uh, uh, heard from David last week. At the base of the mountain were the people, then you moved up where the 70 elders were, that was the holy place, and right above the holy place, going into the most holy place, or the place where God's throne was, is you had to pass through this blue barrier, which Moses did, to encounter the very intense presence of God. In the tabernacle, you have the court where the people are, the holy place, where the priests do their work, and then the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the high priest, once a year, would enter and behold the glory of God, and doing so on behalf of the people. What the tabernacle pointed to was the presence of God. It was echoing Eden all over the place. That's the point of Exodus 25 through 31. God is giving his people his very presence. And all orbits around the seven, the seven things, the seven lists, the seven articles, pointing back to creation, the seven days of creation. So for example... In 25 through 27, you have seven things for the tabernacle listed. You have the list of materials, one through nine. You have the ark, 10 and following, verse 10 and following. And in that, you have the blue fabric, again, pointing back to that lapsus, the lazuli, which is separating the, the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, you have the, the cherubim that's on top of the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat in which God's throne is, God's presence is. The third article is you have the table of bread, and you have 12 pieces on there, two piles of six pointing to uh, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. You have the lampstand, which is referring to the very presence of God, the reflection of God upon the loaves, which is the presence of God's people. Number five, the curtain and the tent. Number six, the altar. And lastly, you have the courtyard. How many items? Seven. And then in chapter 28, you have the priestly garments. How many garments are listed? Seven. Then you get to 29. How many days did it take to consecrate the priests? Class? Seven. Seven, right? There is a theme happening here. Chapter 30 through 31, you have seven items listed, instructions that are given, and the last instruction begins on chapter 31, verses 12 all the way through 18. And what is it? It's the Sabbath. The Sabbath. What also was created on the seventh day in creation? It was the Sabbath. 31.12, then the Lord said, which is the seventh time the Lord speaks. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Verse 16, the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. 
It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Jesus being our true Sabbath in him, in his presence, we as his people are refreshed and renewed. The deepest longings of our heart are satisfied only in the presence of God. When David, the psalmist, cries out, he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. What is the greatest longing of my heart? It's to dwell in the presence of God. I have longings. I have other desires, absolutely. But the deepest desire of my heart, the greatest longing is that it's core of me is to dwell in the presence of God. That's how God has built us. God's presence satisfies the deepest lungs of our heart, and it does so in two ways. And this is what the tabernacle reveals to us and how God satisfies the deepest lungs in two ways. First, in his infinite glory, but second, in his infinite beauty. And the tabernacle reveals not only his infinite glory, but also his infinite beauty. First, the tabernacle reveals his infinite glory. When you get to the holy place, Right across from the table of showbread or where the uh, 12 loaves are, you have the lampstand. And all of the Hebrew scholars will say this, is that that lampstand is referring to and pointing to the very presence of God being reflected upon what is representative of God's people. Also, it is is pointing to the stars in the sky. Now, why that? Because in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display his knowledge. So when we look at the stuff of earth, but especially the stars in the sky, the moon and the sun, it reflects and reveals to us something about the nature of who God is. That is his glory. So when you go out at night, tonight, on a cloudless night, you look up, you see the stars and you say, that reflects the glory of God. And that's what David says. Every time he was a sheep out in the field looking up at the stars, he says, that reflects the glory of God. That is evidence of the presence of God's glory with me. Now, we need to grab a hold of this. I I was looking this week at an image from the uh, the Hubble telescope, and it's the deep field image. How many people know about the deep field image? Okay, we got maybe one or two or three, maybe ten. But for the rest of you, this is the deep field image. And what NASA says is is that within this picture, you look at these lights and you think, well, those are nice stars. Nah, those aren't nice stars. Those are galaxies. And the Hubble uh, telescope with the deep field image is the deepest part of the universe that we can see. Out of all of the universe, that's the deepest part of the universe, the cosmos, that we can see. And there's an estimated 3,000 galaxies in this picture. And within each galaxy, you have approximately a hundred billion stars. What also NASA says is, is this is one twenty-fourth millionth of what is in the entire cosmos. I don't even know what that number is. One twenty-fourth millionth. But one illustration, you go 75 miles to the east and you place a tennis ball down. 75 miles, place a tennis ball down. That's one twenty-fourth millionth. And in that tennis ball, you have 3,000 galaxies, 100 billion stars. Next tennis ball, 3,000 galaxies, 100 billion stars. Next tennis ball, next tennis ball, next tennis ball for 75 miles. 
3,000 galaxies, 100 billion stars. And we just see a sliver in the Milky Way. And imagine, you look up at the stars of the sky, you see the infinite glory of who God is. And you look at yourself, and there's no wonder why the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, you know, the moon and the stars, what is humankind that you're mindful of them, the son of man that you care for them? When I see all of this beauty, all of this glory, who are we? And this is what God tells us. I'll tell you who you are. You're greater than the stars in the sky because you have the imprint of my image upon you. The God who holds all of the stars, all of the galaxies in his hand also holds you, knows you, sees you, gives you security, gives you the deepest longings of your life. How is that possible? His presence. It's his presence. Do you know it? Do you feel it? Do you see it? To the extent that we understand the glory of God is the extent that we will understand the value and the worth of who we are as those who have been created in his image. That's why A.W. Tozer says, the present generation of Christians has suffered what I call lost concept of majesty. This has come about by a slow decline, manifesting itself in our depreciation of ourselves. Those who hold a low value of man have a corresponding low value of God. After all, God created humanity in his own image. When we cease to understand the majestic nature of humanity, we cease to appreciate the majesty of God. Do you know who you are? You know the beauty and the glory of who you are. You have been created in the image of God, the one who created all of this, holds it all in his hand, and knows you, sees you. When a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal, who, by the way, was the smartest person on planet Earth at the time of his life, and maybe even today, as smart as he was, he had an encounter with God, and all of that other stuff just kind of faded away. This is what he said when he had an encounter with the infinite glory of God. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous, righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, joy, tears of joy. Do we know that? God's pre- God's presence satisfies the deepest longing of our heart because in his presence is infinite glory. But secondly, in his presence is also infinite beauty. In the tabernacle, you had all of the precious stones. You had the gold, you had the silver, you had the onyx. You had all of these precious things. Even the curtain was embroidered, beautiful. I mean, with reds and purples and blues. It was magnificent, extravagant. It was beautiful. And it was pointing to the fact that we worship a God who is beautiful, infinite in his beauty. And infinite in his beauty points to two things. The first is that his beauty orients our lives around those things that we find beautiful. I mean, isn't that true? When we see something or someone of beauty, we want to be around them. All of a sudden, we orient our life around that person. When I first met Jana, my... It's my daughter. When I first met her, my friends would say, hey, let's go into a basketball league. I said, uh-uh. Let's join a softball league. Nope. 
<laughs> Let's go hang out on Friday night. Uh-uh. I'm hanging out with Jana. Why? Because the thing that captures our affections, the thing that we find as beautiful, all of a sudden we will orient our life around that which we find most beautiful. Psalm 27 says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. One thing. Now, if I was to ask that question to you, what would be the answer that you would give? It might be a relationship. It might be a change in a family status. It might be to be single. And if you're single, to be, to be married. If you're married, to be single. I, I don't know. But what is the one thing that you ask for? What is the thing that your heart longs for? The psalmist says, one thing I, one thing I look for, one thing I desire, to dwell in your house, O Lord, to gaze upon your beauty, to dwell with you in your tabernacle, to dwell with you, Lord, because that is the one cry of my heart. That's the greatest desire that I have. And then he goes on to say, and it's fascinating, 27 verse 5, for in the day of trouble, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, for from the day of trouble. As a Christian, you will go through, I will go, we will go through trouble. He doesn't say if a, he doesn't have a Pollyanna approach that if you're a Christian, all of a sudden things will be sunny and 70 all the time. He says you will have trouble in your life. You will have hardship, difficulty. There will be times where there's longings in your heart that won't be fulfilled, but you have to see the ultimate thing in your life, which is Jesus, his presence. Even in the day of trouble, we will find satisfaction for our soul because God is the most beautiful thing of all. The most beautiful thing. But secondly, God's infinite beauty also reveals not, that we, not only that we reorient our life around that which we find is beautiful, but when we encounter beauty, we want to take it in. <laughs> we want to eat it. Have you ever been on a mountaintop and you just see it all and you just want to like, you know, bring it into you? Just want to... We want to allow it to consume you. When you see something utterly gorgeous, beautiful, you want to be united to it. A picture, music, you just take it in, and then you also want to share it with somebody else. C.S. Lewis says, when we encounter beauty, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. Now, how is that possible with the tabernacle? Because in the, the tabernacle was only possible for one person. It's possible because the tabernacle was pointing to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Everything in the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies, how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, the fullness of grace and truth. The curtain that split 
When Jesus was crucified, he says, my body is that curtain. The light, he is the true light, the light of the world. The bread, he is the true bread, the bread that is broken for us. He is the ultimate mercy seat because it's through him that we find experience of God's presence forevermore, eternal pleasures forevermore. He is the ultimate sacrifice because his blood spilled on the cross is the blood that was spilled on the mercy seat, the atonement cover that gave us access to God. And he is the true high priest as he goes in on our behalf so that through Christ we can now experience God's eternal presence. In the words of Peter, we become participants in the divine nature. How? Through Christ, by his spirit. As a result of his infinite glory, infinite beauty, we are united to him. The ultimate longings of our heart can only be satisfied ultimately through him. I want to draw this out. There, there's, just, there's some sermons where you just think, oh, it's just in you so deep, and you just want to like, just want to, you know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's just like I want to get it in. I want to get it in us as a congregation, as a people. You know? That the one thing that we desire, the only thing, ultimately the thing that we desire is God's presence. That we as a people of God will experience his presence in all of his fullness of glory and joy, peace. Uh, coming up on our annual meeting next week, next Sunday, we're going to be sharing more about what's coming up on the next year. But I will give you a trailer. Um, and that is, we're going to be focusing on the presence of God over the next year. There's a lot of things that we've engaged in as a church. And over this next 365 days, we as a community are going to focus on the presence of God. Because what we need for this hour is not more programs. We need God's presence. We don't need more strategies. We need God's presence. We don't need more of our technique. We need God's presence. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you to come to that and to hear more of what we believe God has put upon our heart in regards to the annual theme or the rally cry or the focus for these next 365 days. The second thing I want to say is that if you feel distant from the Lord and maybe you've engaged in things that you know, you've sought legitimate desires in illegitimate ways, we're going to have a confession. And this is a time where you can just lay those things before the Lord and say, Lord, because of your grace, because of your mercy, I know that you've forgiven me of my sin. I give it to you, and I want to be united once again to you because of your grace and mercy. The third thing I want to say, if you are hungering for more of the presence of God in your life, there's going to be prayer ministers in the back who would love to pray for you. We're going to come forward when we have communion, and that's an outward expression of the fact that we've been united to Christ. And if during that time you just need to receive prayer, I would encourage you to do so. Allow yourself to come before the Lord, not with pretense or presupposition, nothing in our hands that we bring, but simply to him do we cling. He will reveal his presence to us, and that presence will be his infinite glory and his infinite beauty. 